Well, happy holidays. Uh, just kidding. We haven't caved in yet at Calvary Bible Church, I'll tell you that. Well, Merry Christmas. Uh, I'm Dave Hintz. I'm the college and evangelism pastor filling in for Jack as he's at, in the uh, frozen tundra of Russia instructing seminary students. So while he's gone, he's graciously given me the pulpit. And I was wondering if you'd join me in praying for your hearts and mine as uh, I prepare to preach the word. Father God, we do thank you for this opportunity to, to come together and to worship you during this Christmas season. We do thank you for your, your gift of your son and how he made possible peace on earth. And Lord, we pray as we listen to your word that we will endeavor to become peacemakers ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christmas is just two weeks away, and some of you undoubtedly are pretty nervous. You haven't finished your shopping. You have a great Christmas feast to prepare. You, uh, you haven't even decorated the house because you procrastinated. Now, procrastinators, fear not. My quarrel is not with you this morning. But when you think about the Christmas season, you have another uh, task that you have to do, and that is to decide what Christmas parties are you going to attend? Now, when you get invited to a Christmas party, we have this little filter, this grid that is inside our mind, where first of all, we think, well, when is it, and am I free, or am I available during that time? Secondly, you, you consider the cost of going to the Christmas party. Well, I have to make a casserole dish. Do I have to bring a white elephant gift? Thirdly, you think about the importance of showing up to this Christmas party. Will this person be grievously offended if I do not show? How important is it that I'm there? And then fourthly, you think about who's going to be there. And you do this for two disparate reasons. One, because if a certain person is there, you definitely want to be there. When I was interested in my wife from afar... If she was at a Christmas party, I would be at that Christmas party. But the second reason would be because if that person shows up, you don't want to be at that Christmas party. The reason, because that person, this is a strong word, is your enemy. I mean, how else would you describe somebody who you don't want to spend Christmas with? This might be somebody who could be your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or wife or, or ex-spouse. This could be somebody who has slandered you. This could be a person who challenges you or provokes you to anger. Maybe this person is so obnoxious and rude and annoying that you'd rather listen to Leonard Nimoy, the actor who played Spock, sing Christmas carols for five hours and spend five minutes with this person. This person might have been a close friend who you had a falling out with. Uh, this could be somebody who abused you when you were a child. It could be somebody who owes you a lot of money and seems to have forgotten about it. This could be somebody who has publicly humiliated you. It could be somebody who is giving you the silent treatment for some unknown reason. Or this person could be your neighbor who ever since the lawn mowing incident 20 years ago, things haven't been the same. In fact, you would be fine if you never see this person again. Whatever the cause, this person changes the way you act. At the Christmas party, 
you pull up and you see their car in front of the house and you take a deep breath. Oh, Lord, help me. The doorbell rings when you're there and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, it could be them. You spend your time trying to tactfully dodge any conversations with them. And what's ironic about this is that you are at this Christmas party where you're celebrating peace on earth. And here you are trying to avoid your enemy at a Christmas party. See, that person is your enemy. And what's ironic is we talk about reconciliation. We talk about peace because Christmas is a time when we celebrate how God sent his son to have peace with God. You look at Charles Wesley's immortal hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. God sent his only begotten son to earth so that you might have eternal life through his sacrifice. You look at Romans 5.10, which says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, when we blaspheme God by using his name as a cuss word, when we committed murder against humans created in his image through angry thoughts in our heart, when we committed adultery with each lustful glance, when we spurned his mercy, rejected his law, he reached out to us and made an offer of peace that if we accept the saving sacrifice of his son, we will no longer be his enemy. He has offered peace on earth. In the words of, of Paul in Titus 3, 3 through 4, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, enslaved to various lust and pleasure, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Peace is a wonderful thing, especially when you have peace with God. And you have been called into a saving relationship with Christ. You have been reconciled. You have peace with God. And brother and sister, if you're a believer in Christ, God wants to do a work in your heart so that you will be like him in every way, including pursuing peace with your enemies. So this morning, this Christmas, the Bible and by God's grace through this message is going to teach you how to be a peacemaker so that your enemy will no longer be your enemy, but will be at peace with you and they will be reconciled. And to do this, we're going to turn to Romans twelve seventeen through 21. Romans twelve seventeen through 21. It says the following. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of men. If possible, as far, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, as we really dive into this text, it's important that we understand the general context. See, Paul was writing 
to a church that had differences with one another. The Jews and the Gentiles of the Roman congregation had trouble getting along. And so what, what Paul does is he talks to them about the true source of unity, which is their common faith in Christ. All of them, whether you are a Jew or you're a Gentile, you have transgressed the law of God. You are e- equally guilty. Therefore, what brings you to God is having faith in the saving work of his son. And so you do not have a righteousness by being a Jew. You do not have a righteousness by by being a good Gentile. You have a righteousness of Christ that was given to you when you placed your faith in him. And so after rehearsing all these glorious doctrines of reconciliation with God, in chapters 12 and on, he explains how to apply this doctrine of reconciliation, that it should be reflective and characteristic of the community. In Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul explains the priority of translating spiritual truth into life. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So he calls you to be a community characterized by sacrificial love, which is distinct from the rest of the world. According to verses 3 through 8 in chapter 12, you're used your spiritual gifts to serve one another, to build one another up. In chapters 9 through 13, you are to love one another without hypocrisy, to have a selfless love unstained by the world. And then in 14 through 21, we see that he calls you to be at peace with all men. Later on, as we go into chapters 14 and 15, we see that there was a difference as far as the use of liberties. For Jewish Christians were upset at the Gentile Christians' dietary choices. And so again, these were people who are not at peace with each other. Not only did they have the the regular uh, strain of living with non-Christians in the world and sharing the planet with them, they had to live at peace with the brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. And so what, what Paul is doing is he gives us, a, a, gives us um, instruction about how to have peace with all men, Christian or non-Christian. The first step is to rescind your rights. I'm going to repeat these as we go through the message. The second step is to maintain your testimony. Third step is to passionately pursue peace. Fourth step is to let God take revenge. And the fifth step is to overcome evil with good. So what do you do? The first step is to rescind your rights. And we get this from the first half of verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil. The first step to making peace with your enemy is to resist that primal urge that says you must strike back when you're hurt. You must rescind your right for revenge. You must rescind your right to extract justice. Now, if you were a Jew back in this time, very schooled in the law, and somebody punched you in the face, sucker punched you, so that you had a black eye and you lost a tooth, your mind would immediately race back to to, uh, Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 through 20, which says this. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. 
Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. In other words, that other person who sucker punched you deserves a black eye and a tooth extraction. That is what they deserve. It's right there in the Bible. That is your right. And we live in in a society in the West where we are told that we deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if anybody takes that away from us and nobody tries to defend us, we are openly disgusted. What right do you have to take away my right to happiness? Did you see what that person did to me? They can't get away with that. And as a result, we are tempted to take our own revenge. But really, how objective can you be? How objective would a judge be who is presiding over the case of a murderer, but the murderer in question murdered the judge's son? You see, when we are angry, when we feel wronged, when we feel like we have been defiled in some way, the actions that we take more than likely will err on the side of unrighteousness or evil. Consider Ahmed Bouchiki. I'm not sure if any of you know who he is or who he was. He was a Moroccan waiter who was mistaken by the members of the Mossad. The Mossad is the Israeli intelligence agency. As, the, as Ali Hassan Salama, the leader of the Black September organization. Now, those of you who are familiar with Olympic history... In 1972, the Black September organization sent eight terrorists to capture eight members of the Israeli Olympic team, and they slaughtered them. It is known as the Munich Massacre. Three of them got away. Five of the terrorists died in a gunfight. And so what the Israeli government did to, to seek and extract justice as they started Operation Wrath of God in which operatives of the Mossad tracked down, hunted, and assassinated all those they believed were responsible for the Munich massacre. And on the night of July 21st, 1973, Ahmed, an innocent Moroccan waiter, was walking home with his pregnant wife from the cinema in Lillehammer, Norway, when some members of the Mossad got out of the car and shot him in front of his wife 14 times. They killed the wrong man. In their zeal to right the wrongs done at Munich, they committed a terrible crime. Somebody might might snap at you, so you snap back at them. They may have slandered you, so you slander them. But then you find out later that they actually did not snap at you and they actually did not slander you. And what has happened is you have drawn first blood. You have started a conflict. You have sinned against God in response to their sin. You have compounded the situation. See, when your zeal leads you to exact justice, the overarching temptation is that you create an injustice. And that is why Peter corrects his principle of lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, with this in Matthew five thirty-eight through 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, 
turn the other to him also. Somebody who is a peacemaker needs to surrender the right for revenge. They need to resist that primal urge to strike back and refuse to pay back evil for evil. The second thing you have to do is you have to maintain your testimony. In the second half of the verse, we see respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now, Paul is calling us, is not calling us to submit to the morality of the culture. The morality that says that, that intolerance is the greatest sin one could ever commit. He's not saying that we should do what is right in the sight of unbelievers, like they're the final arbiters of, of right and wrong. But what he's saying is that even unbelievers admire people who don't retaliate. They see the inherent goodness in that. Most respectable unbelievers admire Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King because through nonviolent means, they change the culture. Most unbelievers familiar with the life of Christ admire him because he did not exact punishment or revenge. They recognize that. You see, and, and we have an audience when we are in the midst of this where our enemies are watching us to see if we respond in a way that is inconsistent with the teachings of Christ so, they get that, so that they can label us a hypocrite. In Titus 2, 7 through 8, Paul instructs his, his apprentice, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Your enemies and your opponents are watching you. They're waiting to see if you lash back in anger. They want to see if you will laugh at that dirty joke. They want to see if you'll just take a glance at that woman who is inappropriately dressed. Why? So that they can call you a hypocrite and discredit your message. And what happens is when we lose our testimony, we lose the ability to proclaim the very truths that will reconcile that person with God and with us. In the words of Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has become tasteless, corrupted by the world, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. When your witness is corrupted, you lost your saltiness and you have lost your ability to reflect the teachings of Christ to these men and women who are your enemies. In Matthew five sixteen, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. See, when you sin, you answer a fool according to his folly. You are to guard your testimony when your enemy is provoking you. You are to be mere so that you can reflect the righteousness of Christ to a fallen world. The third thing you need to do to pursue peace is to passionately pursue peace. And we get this from verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. See, peace in God's sight is precious. God loves peace. In Hebrews twelve fourteen, the author says, pursue peace with all men and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. 
What he's doing is the author is making this connection between your sanctification and your ability to have peace. Somebody who, who keeps peace, it requires characteristic humility, deference, gentleness, kindness, tact, love, etc. Somebody who is a mature Christian, a gentle Christian, a loving Christian, a sanctified Christian will have an easier time making peace than the reckless young Christian who at times can err on the side of being obnoxious. You know that a Christian has a good marriage or that they're mature because there's peace within the relationship. See, peace and your ability to maintain peace is characteristic of your walk with the Lord and characteristic of your sanctification. We also learn from James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. God gives us the wisdom we need to pursue peace. God's giving you the resources to have peace. In Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Jesus blesses those who seek to reconcile with other people. In fact, Jesus is a supreme peacemaker. He is the one who through his life and sacrifice and teaching enabled his enemies to have peace with God, who has enabled men to have peace with each other. And this peace is something that is promulgated and with the proclamation of the gospel where more and more people who hear the message can have peace with him. That is why a disciple of Jesus should not be characterized by, by strife, petty, divide and conquer attitudes, but they should delight in making peace whenever possible. Now, I just want to make it clear, as, as Paul is advocating peace, he's not advocating pacifism. If you keep on reading in Romans 13, he speaks very clearly that God has, inju- has entrusted the government with the sword to exercise peace when necessary, where God can even use war to correct injustice. But what he's talking about It's peace in the realm of interpersonal relationships among the community and among the the community that you have with your non-Christian friends and neighbors. Now in three in 12, 18, we learn three truths about peace. The first one we learn is that peace is impartial. Who are you to have peace with? All men. It doesn't matter their race, their gender, whether they're in-laws Cousins, relatives, friends, doesn't matter. You already have peace with all men. And so often we as Christians, we're we're likely to have peace with certain non-Christians, but not others. We might be willing to have peace with those good moral Christians who share our conservative political agenda, but not with those rank stinking liberals. But that is a violation of this commandment. We should seek to have peace with all men without partiality, without discrimination. Secondly, we learn that peace is not always possible. Notice the phrase, if possible. This suggests that there are times when peace cannot be achieved without significant moral compromise. Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 34 to 36. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. 
In this passage, Jesus is teaching that the spread of the gospel message will divide families. It will divide communities. And that the spread of the gospel message is more important and more precious in God's sight than maintaining peaceful relationships. Brothers and sisters, let me implore you. We must not make peace and harmony an idol for whom we sacrifice the sacred duty of proclaiming the word. We must not make peace and harmony the idol by which we sacrifice the sacred duty of proclaiming the gospel. Now, there's three reasons why the word divides. There's three reasons why discipleship is disruptive. First of all, darkness hates the light. In John 3.20, we read, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. When you live righteously, you refuse to laugh at dirty jokes. You refuse to go along with a lie. You refuse to goof off with your coworkers. It confronts them. It reminds them that their deeds are unrighteous and they hate it. They like to see, they like nothing better than to see you get drunk on a weekend. They want to watch you fall so that they can justify themselves in some twisted way. Secondly, we see that, that peace is not always possible. We see that peace is um, not, not always possible, but not only possible because we preach the gospel. Many people have suffered broken relationships after lovingly telling their friends, Or family members, I love you, but you, contrary to your own opinion, are a sinner. And if you die in this state without repenting in Jesus Christ, you will go into the lake of fire. That's pretty offensive stuff. But the Bible calls us, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before him, before my father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. When you confront non-Christians on their sin and you proclaim the gospel to them, often it might be the end of your relationship. But again, do not sacrifice peace. Do not sacrifice proclaiming the gospel to the idol of peace. Thirdly, confronting other Christians. There may be a time when you see somebody who is caught in a trespass. Perhaps they're saying inappropriate comments to their coworkers and they're tarnishing the witness of Christ. Brother, sister, you have a moral duty to pull that person aside and lovingly confront them on their sin. In the words of Paul in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. In each of the above cases, God calls you to sacrifice peace. Now going back to 12.8, we learned that peace is impartial, not always possible, but, but peace, even though we can't compromise to achieve it, often it does lie within your power. For instance, you have sinned against your enemy. You have openly lied to your boss about why you were late. Well, at that point in time, what do you do? You go make things Right. You humbly and contritely apologize and you say, forgive me, I have sinned against you and accept the consequences. Perhaps you are in an argument 
Not really an argument. It started off very civil with the, the atheist at your work. But then it began to escalate. He began to raise his voice. He began to slander your religion. He began to call you insulting names like moron, idiot, for believing in the Bible. He even spit on you. And then you just explode. How dare you tell me that? And you blew it. You lost your temper. Even though he sinned in about a hundred ways before he ever reached that point. But then the next day, the atheist gets up and he says, Hey, everybody, yesterday I got into an argument with, with so-and-so and I acted very unkind. I was wrong. I did very bad in everybody else's sight. I don't want to seek your forgiveness. That's the atheist saying that. Does that sound right? Is that the way it should be even though he did the most sin? No, it should be Christians who start the sprint down the low road. We should be the first ones to apologize. We should be the first ones to say, I blew it. Even though you did all these things, doesn't matter because I sinned against God and I sinned against you. And for what I have done, forgive me because I am a sinner in need of grace. I have confessed my sin to God and he has forgiven me. And by your example, you're showing the need to repent. You see, you should pursue peace as far as it depends on you. Now, obviously, you can't do it if you sin or if the or let's say they give an unreasonable request, like I'm not going to have peace with you unless you give me a million dollars. Well, you don't have a million dollars. You obviously can't make peace with your enemies in that case. But how far do you take peace? Let's say you had your, your house remodeled and you had it recarpeted and you paid a Christian brother who goes to another church $2,000 to recarpet your living room. Not only did he bring in the wrong carpet, not only did he stain it by doing some, making some stupid decisions and in installing it, but it doesn't even reach the edge of your living room. And you're out $2,000. What do you do? Now, conventional wisdom is you demand a refund. So you ask for a refund, he doesn't give it to you. So you confront them on stealing. I don't care. You talk to the elders of the church and they don't believe in church discipline. So what do you do? Do you sue? Do you sue? I mean, after all, this guy stole from me. I'm supposed to be a good financial steward of the resources God has given me. I'm entitled to that $2,000. But the Bible says, in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, Christ's public testimony is more important than your $2,000. That's what it's saying. When there's no other way, and I, and I understand there might be some complex situations like this that you're in, but this is to make a point. And if you do have a, a weird situation, talk to one of your elders and we'd be happy to give you more, more insight. But the Bible makes it clear that often we must sacrifice to achieve peace. So how far do you go? You go as far as you can possibly go short of sinning against God or against your conscience. You make as much peace as possible. You do everything that you can. 
Now notice what I did not say. I did not say that you should pursue peace as long as it is convenient. You should pursue peace as long as you're comfortable with the results. You should pursue peace as long as you don't have to say you're sorry to somebody. You should pursue peace as long as it doesn't take away from any of your time. You should pursue peace as long as you don't have to, you know, spend any money on it. Peace is a very costly endeavor. Just ask Jesus. How much did it cost him to achieve peace? What kind of liberties and rights did he surrender to make peace with him possible for you? That is the standard. The fourth means of achieving peace, becoming a peacemaker, is to resolve to let God take revenge. We get this from Romans twelve nineteen. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In this passage, Paul commands the Roman saints to not take their own revenge, to not allow God to, to fail to, um, to never resolve, to never allow God the opportunity to not take revenge, to leave room for the wrath of God. In other words, you are to let God be the one who avenges you. You are to let an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, righteous judge to be the one to exact peace. See, he does this. He gives you this command, but he also gives you a promise. He says this, vengeance is mine, I will repay. What God is saying is that that sin that hurts you, it hurts me too. If it hurts you enough to make you want to strike them, it infuriates him enough to send them to the lake of fire. God hates that sin. He will exact revenge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That is a promise. And so when people do terrible, atrocious things to you, God knows and he'll deal with it. But what if that person's a Christian? He'll deal with it. He will repay. But in the Christian's case, Jesus took that payment in their stead. God takes that sin seriously. Now, personally, I find that this promise in the Bible, as weird as it sounds, vengeance is mine, I will repay, is one of those comforting promises in all of Scripture. Seriously. Because you know what this does? This is an act of mercy. Where God has said, Dave, don't trouble yourself with dirty work. Don't trouble yourself with exacting revenge. Just love other people. I'll take care of that. I see it. I know it. I'll take care of it. You just focus on loving your enemies. Dr. Grand Staines at, at 58 was the director of the leprosy mission in Barapada, Orissa, India, and translator of the New Testament into the Ho tribe language. A native Australian, he labored in India for 35 years, helping the poor, the leprous, and the illiterate, sharing the gospel with them. On the night of July 23rd, 1999, Staines was sleeping in his Jeep after attending a jungle Bible camp with his two young sons, Philip, who was 10, and Timothy, who was 6. 
In the middle of the night, they were awakened by radical Hindus who busted open the windows of their Jeep, stabbed Graham and his young sons with pitchforks and beat them, doused them with gasoline, doused the car with gasoline, and then lit it on fire, burning Graham and his two young sons alive. When they found the charred bodies of Graham, they saw that they were embracing each other. When the final moments of Graham's life, he was comforting and protecting his young sons. Now, when you read about that, doesn't that make you angry? Doesn't that infuriate you? Especially when you consider that the people who are responsible received relatively light sentences. Yet it's remarkable how his wife Gladys responded to people who were her enemies. She said this, I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. And that was proclaimed to every major newspaper in India. How was she able to do that? How was she able to say such things to countrymen who allowed her husband and two children to die? It's because she left the justice to God. And this was not mere talk. Everyone speculated that Gladys and their surviving daughter Esther would go back to Australia. But she didn't. She said this, my husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy. Gladys was from another planet, wasn't she? She is from another world. She full on trusted God to deal with the people who were her enemies. Undoubtedly, she prayed for their salvation. She wanted to see them in a, in a right relationship with the Lord. And she was able to do that because she delegated all justice, all vengeance to the Lord. In the same way, Christian, God will avenge every wrong done to you. He knows about it. Your tears are kept track in a bottle. Trust him to take vengeance. But as for you, love your enemies. Fifthly, you need to learn to overcome evil with good. In Romans 12, 20, we read, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink for in doing so you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What Paul is doing is he's quoting a proverb, Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. And he explains that people who treat their enemies with kindness will bring remorse upon them and blessing from God. He's not just saying literally just give them a drink or give them some food. He's saying respond with acts of kindness, whatever they may be. Somebody slanders you and you go to a Christmas party. You seek them out. You pray for them. You say, hey, 
How are you doing today? How can I pray for you? You know, it's good to see you. You don't flatter them. You give them a generous gift. You let them know that you love them. You respond to their evil with kindness. See, the imagery of burning coals represents the pangs of conscience. And these are are more readily stirred by acts of kindness than acts of vengeance. You do these kind things to them to produce a sharp pain of contrition and regret that will lead to remorse. Now, let me make it crystal clear here. The goal is reconciliation, not revenge. You don't do nice things to get back at people. You know, don't just plot and say, oh, wait till I give them that Lexus. They're going to hate me. You don't do that. You show kindness to them because you want them to no longer be your enemy. Robert Chapman, the, the blessed saint who pastored a church in Barnstaple, England during the 19th century, was called by Charles Spurgeon, the saintliest man he ever knew. He was kind, generous, gentle, but he had enemies. One time when he was open-air preaching, the, the town grocer spit on him. Not only that, but this person would continue to, to castigate and revile this dear, sweet, saintly man. Well, one day, Chapman had one of his wealthy vi- relatives pay him a visit, and this wealthy relative was, was so moved by the, by the simple, godly life of Chapman that he said, can I do something for you? How, how about if I, I buy you some groceries? So Chapman agreed, but with one condition that if he were to buy groceries, he'd buy it from the very grocer who reviled him. And so unaware of any previous interaction between the grocer and Chapman, the, the new visitor showed up at the grocery store and bought a slew of groceries. Quite a tidy profit for a grocer, eh? And then he went and he purchased it and said, I would like to have these groceries delivered to Robert C. Chapman. And the grocer said, are you sure you came to the right grocery store? Well, well, yeah. He told me to go to this very one. He specifically asked me to go to your grocery store. Burning coals were being heaped on his head. Convicted by the evil he committed against this dear saintly man, the grocery personally delivered the groceries to Chapman, sought his forgiveness and gave his life to Christ. So the objective is to achieve lasting peace. That person went from being Robert Chapman's enemy and God's enemy to becoming Chapman's spiritual brother. So God can use your loving acts, your kindness, to transfer someone from the kingdom of darkness, from being an enemy of the cross of Christ, to being part of the kingdom of of his beloved son. They'll be grafted into the spiritual family and become your brother and your sister. How glorious is that? That's true peace. So now that I I hope that you've been been thoroughly convicted and sense your need to make peace, I want to give you some help. How can you become a biblical peacemaker? Well, the first thing that you need to do is you need to not accept substitute peace. You need to know the difference between true biblical peace and artificial peace. For instance, 
It's the difference between denial of the conflict versus seeing differences with sobriety. It's the difference between silent coexistence and loving communication. It's the difference between refusal to bring up an issue versus not being afraid to talk about it so that sin will be confronted and you'll both become godlier. Artificial peace seeks to avoid the enemy versus true peace reaches out to the enemy. Artificial peace has a changed relationship that's characterized by bitterness, distance, and discomfort, but they're still at peace versus a warm relationship fused by forgiveness and assurance. It's a difference between superficial acknowledgement of sin versus deep, heartfelt contrition. It's a difference between saying, I love them, but I do not like them. How many of you use that one? Versus, I love them and I desire to have a close, godly relationship with them. Why? Because it's such an analogy of what Christ did for me. The second thing you need to do is you need to examine your conduct. You need to take the log out of your own eye. Have you sinned in any way against them? There might be this mountain of sin, of transgressions that they've done against you. But have you just responded angrily just once? Take the log out of your own eye. It sends a powerful message to the unbeliever. Thirdly, you need to apologize when necessary. Seek their forgiveness. Show them, demonstrate to them the path of reconciliation. Tell them, I realize when I sinned against you, I sinned against God. I have sought his forgiveness and he has forgiven me through his son. Now, I seek your forgiveness as well. Will you please forgive me? And you do this without making any reference to their sin. You're focused on your own. Fourthly, you confront when necessary. Sometimes it's sin that separates relationships and it may not be your sin. It might be their sin. Perhaps you need to have a frank conversation with some of those sinful patterns or sinful expectations. Again, You should do this even if they're not Christians. Because isn't that what the gospel does? The gospel confronts people on their sin. And hopefully as they see their sin, they'll see their need to repent. Fifthly, you need to forgive the other person. And this is a simple step. You should forgive as Christ has forgiven you. And that is to resolve to never bring it up unless it's for God's glory or their own good. Ken Sandy, the president of Peacemaker Ministries, who wrote an excellent book called The Peacemaker, says this, as Christians, we are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. Let me say that again. As Christians, we are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, as Christians, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. Very simple. We've been forgiven. Therefore, we should forgive in kind. Sixthly, think about ways to show kindness. Give them a plate of Christmas cookies. While you're at it, you can remember your pastor as well. (laughs) Anything with chocolate, by the way. Invite them to the Christmas concert. Give them a thoughtful gift. Have a conversation with them. Let them know that you're praying for them. 
show kindness. If you want some more ideas, read The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy or, or Agape Leadership by Robert L. Peterson. Or if, if you're in some complex situation that you don't quite know what to do, but you know you want peace, talk to one of your elders. Seek their wisdom. Seek their counsel so that you'll know how to make biblical peace. And finally, you need to persevere. What do you do if they don't reciprocate? What if you do if you seek their forgiveness, but they ignore you? Do you just give up? Do you give it a week? Do you give it six months? Well, let me ask you a question. How long does God extend his offer of peace to an unbeliever? How long does God offer them eternal life? How long does he offer reconciliation to their last breath? As long as they are alive, you should seek to make peace with them. Now, as we celebrate peace on earth and goodwill to men, Christian, I challenge you, don't wait for peace on earth. Make peace on earth. Right, don't wait for peace on earth. Make peace on earth. I mean, our goal is not simply to, to pray for peace, but to bring peace. We need to be the change agents which God radically uses to reconcile this world to himself. God loves peace. He values peace. He loves it when we have peace with him. We are to have peace with other people so that they can have peace with God. Eternal, lasting peace. And so we are able to, to really Echo the immortal hymn. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Think about this and think about how much God values peace. It says, O come, desire of nations bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Isn't that a great line? Christ will come and he will bring peace on earth. The Christian, he has sent you ahead to start this work. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you that you have given us peace with you. And I pray for anyone here who does not have peace with you, that they will see it, seek it, and embrace it. Lord, anyone who has had their conscience pricked, who, who knows that they are tolerating strife in their relationships i pray that they might repent and seek to make things right and that you will give our people the grace they need to do those difficult things lord we do thank you for this holiday season and as we go to christmas parties as we sit around the christmas table with unbelievers help us to spread your peace in jesus name amen